Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful day so far. Uh, I've got David Wheaton coming up in just a minute. We're going to continue our discussion on the book of Genesis. I don't know. We started this uh, six months, seven months ago, maybe. And we're going to talk about how Genesis is the most relevant for today. It's going to be fascinating. I think of Abraham in his elder years when God basically said, I'm going to send you out. And he said, okay, I will go. By the way, where am I going? And God said, just go. I'll tell you later. And then uh, Abraham said, well, what direction? Just wander. (laughs) God says, well, I'll give you a child. Abraham was basically, well, how is that going to happen? God says, "I'll, I'll tell you later. Just wait. And then his son is born. God says, I want you to sacrifice your child. Abraham says, why? God says, well, I'll tell you later. Abraham lived an extraordinary life man of great faith, and we have lots to learn from the book of Genesis, and David Wheaton uh, is my guest on our studio line right now. Of course, he is at thechristianworldview.org. You can always go check him out there. He is a uh, radio host, an author, and former professional tennis player, and um, a husband, a father, a all-around great guy, and my friend. David, welcome. Hey, good to be with you today, Bill. I love the series we're doing on Genesis and how the book of Genesis is most relevant for today. I think we've been at this now five, six months, and I'm loving it. And we're all the way up to Genesis chapter 24. It's going to be great. It's better than the coronavirus, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. (laughs) It's way better. So let's, uh, just for the sake of our listeners, let's review where we were last time before we move on. Yeah, so we last time we discussed Genesis 22 and 23, and the, the Genesis 22 is probably one of the most incredible chapters in all of Scripture, where we find Abraham, the, the father of faith, one of the patriarchs um, of the nation of Israel, and, and really anyone of faith goes back to the example of Abraham's faith, how he believed God and was reckoned unto him for righteousness, and that means that we're saved by our faith in God, not our faith in our own works. And so that was the, that's who Abraham really was. But Abraham gets this this test, this temptation, not not a temptation, a test by by God to to God tells him directly to to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son Isaac, the the son whom he loves. And Isaac, of course, they he and his wife Sarah had waited for years and years and years to have this son, this one son. And this son was going to be all through him was going to come all these promises of land and seed and blessings and all these these great things. And all of a sudden, God says, uh, go sacrifice Isaac to me. And of course, it's just an incomprehensible test. Uh, You know, God, this was something that God, surely God wouldn't tell someone to do this. This is inconsistent with God's will. But apparently it was so made clear to Isaac or to Abraham that he goes and says, you basically woke up the next morning and took Isaac and some wood and a couple of servants, and he was going to go and sacrifice him. So he gets this test. Again, it's not a temptation. God never tempts us because a temptation is a solicitation to evil. A test is meant 
to be used by God to strengthen us. That's the purpose of it. So he gets this test. It's an incomprehensible test. And then Abraham has this immediate obedience to this test we talked about last time. And that's because of his faith. It says in that chapter that, well, Abraham figured that God was just going to raise Isaac from the dead. He was going to go and kill his son Isaac on an altar, and then God was going to raise him from the dead. I mean, would that that we had that kind of faith to wake up early in the morning, the next day it apparently was, and to go off and obey God just as he stated. Well, that was an incredible act of obedience. Well, the test was passed because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. He had the the knife above him on the altar, and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord stopped him, and then, of course, there was the ram that was stuck by its horns in the thicket behind him. The angel says, go, you've passed this test. Go take the ram and sacrifice it to me instead. And there's great reward and an example of faith uh, through the, the story of Abraham. And it's also a picture of the gospel we talked about, too, how there's this, 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 this situation of substitution. That is the central portion of what the gospel message is, penal substitutionary atonement. That's what God did by sending his son. We deserve to be punished and be on that cross, but God sent his son, his only son, the son that he loves, there's the type, like Isaac, to die in our place for our sins. And so what an amazing chapter Genesis 22 was, Bill, and it was just so great to actually go through that and discuss it with you. And David, I bet there's uh, listeners who know either personally or they've gone through it themselves or they have friends who have gone through terrible uh, infertility issues. I have a friend who's, the doctor said, you have a 1% chance of getting pregnant. And now they've got a healthy 15-year-old girl. But imagine what it's like to wait and wait and wait and never be able to have kids. And then you finally have your son, Isaac, and God says, I want you to sacrifice him. Sacrifice him. And the the next day, Abraham gets up and is obedient. It's just phenomenal. It is. It's an amazing act of obedience. Just, Just to know that God tests us sometimes very severely, but when we obey, God has purposes and plans that we may not see at the time, but if we do obey God, it works out for our good and especially for God's glory. All right, let's talk about the marriage of Isaac. This is interesting. Yeah, so Genesis 23, Abraham's wife Sarah dies, and he's grieving over that, and years go by, and now Isaac is much older And Genesis 24 starts out, and by the way, when he buries Sarah, that's the first plot of land that the Jewish people are going to own, actually, in the the, the promised land. He bought a burial plot for Sarah, and subsequent people uh, from this family will be buried there. That was the first small plot of land, which is there's significance in that. We won't get into today, but that was what took place in Genesis 23. And as we turn the page to Genesis 24, all of a sudden we find Abraham at the end of his life. And it says right there in the first verse, now Abraham was old. He was advanced in age and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And I just want to stop there for a second. When I read that, I mean, just amazing. Just imagine that being said about one of us, that the Lord had blessed Abraham or blessed us in every way. I mean, what an incredible thing to be said about one's life, Mm -hmm. that the Lord that the Lord blessed us in every way. I mean, the Lord really does want to bless us in every way, but it is a conditional thing. It, it is not—we can't just live the way we want and live in opposition to God and in rejection of Him and expect blessing in our life. It is conditional on our obedience to God, our faith in Him. Just like as Abraham was so obedient and faithful to God, God blessed him because of that. Now, these blessings don't always mean they're material blessings, 
like we're going to make more money or get a bigger house or I'm just going to be happy for the rest of my life. I mean, but they could include some of those things. But for sure, the blessing that God gives for obedience is an inner peace and an inner satisfaction and contentment of knowing that we're in a right relationship with the God of the universe, no matter what our situation is in life. So that that's just an amazing start to this chapter. Here's Abraham at the end of his life. He's been blessed by by God in every way. And that's significant in itself that he reached the end of his life and he's still faithful and he's still being mm. blessed. You know, we see that so many times in, let's say, Christians in the in the public square, that pastors even who who don't finish well, sadly and unfortunately, and, and they're not faithful to the end. They, they fall in some way, and there's examples of that in Scripture. And I just think it's a great uh, encouragement, a great warning for us uh, to, to be faithful to the end, to, to be in God's Word and to strive to be faithful like Abraham. So here Abraham is, just to make this a longer answer than I intended it to, Bill, but Abraham tells his servant here at the end of his life, uh, he says to his servant, he said, the oldest of his household, uh, the oldest servant of his household, he says, please, please place your hand under my thigh. In other words, he's going to make his servant take an oath. So something very important is about to come up here. And he says, I'm going to make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and, of, and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son, Isaac, from the daughters of the Canaanites. He was living in the land of Canaan. Mm -hmm. He said, don't take a wife for my son from the daughters from around here, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son, Isaac, from there. So you have to remember that Isaac, Abraham came into the land from a place called Haran, a, a city of Haran, which is way north of the promised land. And he still had relatives there. He had brothers there and so forth, and he had come into the promised land. But you have to remember that promised land was full of Canaanites who were idol worshiping. They did not worship the true God. And if there's if there's two things that every true sh true believer should want for their own child is for that child to love God themselves. In other words, to enter into a right relationship with God through Christ. And secondly, to marry someone who believes the same, who also loves God. And here's Abraham at the end of his life, Bill, with that same desire for Isaac. Isaac uh, apparently has come to the point of his life where he's a worshiper of the same God that Abraham is, and now Abraham wants Isaac to marry someone who has that same belief system as well. Mm -hmm. And David, not to mention some of the swearing oaths typically involved uh, in, in the Near East were kind of unusual with the hand under the, under the thigh. I think mm -hmm. I'd do my negotiating quickly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it was like a solemn oath <laughs> right. he, he, was, he was making, and uh, a hand under the thigh apparently <laughs> confirmed that oath. <laughs> right. All right, let's take a little break. Uh, David Wheaton is my guest. We are enjoying uh, how the book of Genesis is most relevant for today. We've been doing this for five or six months and loving it. We'll take a little break. Be right back. David Wheaton today. We are uh, still studying the book of Genesis and hopefully we'll continue for a little while longer. We're going to uh, continue this until the end, I believe, aren't we, David? 
We are. And oh. I think it's been even longer than five or six months. But, you know, we'll see how long Genesis takes. Who knows how much longer we're going to be alive yeah. we're at the pace we're going. Okay, so we're talking about Isaac getting married. Are there other reasons Abraham is so intent on marrying back into his family? Yeah, I think there are. You know, we, we mentioned the reason of Abraham wants Isaac to marry uh, from his own family, even though the family's living in the, the country that Abraham came from. He just doesn't want him to marry one of the Canaanites, the idol-worshiping Canaanites from around him, because he wants Isaac to be, quote, equally yoked. Mm-hmm. And and that that principle is a is a direct principle from Scripture. The idea of the equal yoke is you know don't you don't put a yoke over two different kinds of animals. You don't have an ox and a donkey trying to trying to plow a field together. It just won't work. They won't cut straight rows. And it's the same thing that God says in Scripture about marriage. Uh, it says positively in First Corinthians seven thirty nine. Paul writes, a wife is bound as long as her husband husband lives. Lives, but if her husband is dead, in other words, she can get remarried to whom she wishes. And then there's this clause, this all important clause, 1 Corinthians 7 39, only in the Lord. In other words, we're only a believer is only to marry another believer. Or it's said another way negatively, Bill, in 2 Corinthians 6, where it says, don't be bound together with unbelievers. And this is a spiritual binding. This isn't just a friendship. This is a more of a spiritual enterprise like, like marriage, or even you could even extend it to probably even business relationships where there's going to be a close relationship going on. Don't be bound together with unbelievers for when he draws all these par- these contrasts. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial, which is a false, which is like Satan? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? And so God says, be separate. And this applies specifically, maybe primarily, Bill, to marriage. Not only does it not work well for a believer to not marry another believer, but it's disobeying God to do so, because two become one. And so to go back, now here in the New Testament, go all the way back, this is exactly what Abraham wants for his son Isaac, wants Isaac to marry a daughter of one of his family. And some of his family, by the way, they weren't all God worshipers. Some were not God worshipers. But in the story, we find out that Rebecca, who would be the chosen wife for Isaac, is one that's willing to go along to marry the son of one who worships God. So there's a there's a there's a unity of worldview of faith that's going to take place in this chapter. So there's the the first reason is that he wants him to be equally yoked in who he marries. And secondly, he also wants all the the promises of that covenant we've been talking about week after week, this land, descendants, a great nation, and a great blessing. He knows that's going to be coming upon Isaac, and he doesn't want a wife, a a non-believing wife, an idol-worshiping wife who will surely pull Isaac away from that. He doesn't want that to enter the picture. Mm -hmm. David, let's talk about God's providence. How is God's providence involved in this? Well, th- this is a word providence that's you know we we use sometimes, but we need to understand what that word actually means. I think a, a simple definition of providence, because that's what really this whole story in Genesis 24 is about. Uh, in 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 the in the servant of Abraham finding a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. It's about God's providence, and and providence is basically this: it's how God orders the events of life mm-hmm. to accomplish His will. It's circumstances ascribable to divine intervention. Okay, so you have this 
this servant now. He travels north. I'm not sure how far it is away. It's probably a couple hundred miles north out of the promised land into this town of Haran. That's where Abraham came from. That's where Abraham's brothers are still living. Some of his family still there. And, he, and the servant prays specifically for God's providence, basically God's leading when he gets back to this town of Haran. He says specifically, he says, behold, I am standing by this spring, this well, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be, and he's praying this, that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers drink, and I will also water your camels as well. May she be the one whom you have appointed, providence, for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. So this servant of Abraham is literally asking for God's providence. Just, just, just please display it. Like he sets up this scenario, let it work like this, so I can know for sure who is the right one for my master's son to marry. And that's, Bill, that's exactly what happens. Rebecca appears, she gives him water, she waters his camels without even being asked. She brings him back to her home where her brother Laban and her, and her father Bethuel live. And this is, this is Abraham's brother. And so right there, you see that God's providence in, in circumstances ascribable to only what he could do are taking shape in the life of Abraham and Isaac. Mm -hmm. And now if she's getting him water and watering the camels, this is a woman who's not afraid of hard work. No, and there, there's 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 information on that. I don't have it right in front of me, but what it was like to to water a group of camels. I mean, camels can drink an incredible amount of water. So this, as you mentioned, exactly right. This was a huge job, yeah, a, a painstaking job to yes. be able to do this, and it showed her her servant's heart to do it. Yeah. So I think, David, uh, my next question is probably a big one for a lot of people because we sometimes think of God's providence in their life, and then we have to uh, uh, look at our own circumstances in life. And we wonder, is this God's providence or is this us applying yeah. our own thing and wanting yeah. it to be our outcome apart from God's providence? Yeah, we're, we're very good at fooling ourselves oh, uh, yeah. when it comes to God's providence. You know, you could—I'll just give you an example. We, we, we see circumstances, let's say favorably. Maybe we see, you know, green lights being turned on. Uh, when we're dating a non-believer and we think, well, this, this surely is God opening doors and turning on green lights for me. But again, we're fooling ourselves. We know what Scripture clearly teaches. Uh, we're, 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 we're changing the providence of God, or we're changing the principles of God to, to ascribe to a providence that we desire, that God doesn't. Or let's say we see circumstances seem favorable for, for me to buy some house or a car far more than I could afford, or maybe presuming way too much on future income to be able to afford something that's like this. Again, we can have these desires and we're looking kind of for signs and we can go against what God wants for us just purely by looking at the signs. So we have to always go back to scripture and ask the question, is this something clearly uh, that is in scripture that God would want for me uh, at this particular time in my life? And so we see this in the life of, of, of the, the servant of Abraham going, he, he tells the story to uh, Rebecca's brother and her father about how he prayed this prayer, and it happened just as, as he had prayed the prayer. He says in verse 48 of uh, Genesis 24, he said, I bowed low and I worshiped the Lord, and I blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, and here's the providence, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master Abraham, uh, his kinsman, for his son. 
In other words, he was doing exactly as his, his, his master had told him, Abraham, what to do. He wasn't going beyond the bounds. He wasn't trying to make something work according to his own purposes. He was really much in the, in the will of God. And so he knew what he was doing was God's providence. And I think we need to be very careful when we see green lights and doors being opened, not necessarily to jump through them immediately, assuming that they're God's providence, but really know after prayer, looking into the Word, other godly counsel in our lives, whether that is in fact the case. Mm-hmm. David, with all this anticipation now that's building, what was that first meeting like between Isaac and Rebecca? <laughs> well, this is like the the movie that ends with the, the beautiful sun uh, love story and walking off hand in hand in the sunset. I, I just, I think it's just, it's just beautiful to read. You know, we've, we've talked about how the servant went and uh, he he found Rebecca. She was the one he had prayed about and and then her brother and father agree uh, to having her go back with the servant, and she obviously is willing to to follow the God of Abraham and Isaac, and so it's a beautiful, equally yoked marriage that's about to take place. And then at the end of the chapter, there's this there's this perfect bow on this love story. You can just picture it, and it says in verse 63 of chapter 24, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. And you can just imagine like the sun setting in the promised land and, and, and there's Isaac out there in the field and he's meditating. In other words, he's not meditating on, you know, some Eastern religion. He's meditating on God. He's meditating on the words of God. And this is the kind of man he was. And he sees these camels coming. And then Rebecca, who's on one of these camels, she lifts up her eyes, it says. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and she said to the servant, who is this this man walking in the field to meet us. And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. Very, very modest person. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And this is actually hard for me to get through without a little tear in the eye here, just, just thinking that he had lost his mother and was so grieved after losing his own mother. And yet this beautiful story of God's providence is about to take place, about to be consummated when the servant brings back his future wife, Sarah. Wow. That's, wow. That is beautiful, David. I just love that. Thank you so much. And you've told that story so well. Just makes you want to open Genesis and read and study more, which is the whole goal of this uh, series with you is to, just to get people back into the very first uh, book of the Bible. It's been fantastic. It, it really is. It's it's a powerful story, and uh, I think it goes back again to the the one takeaway principle for us today is if if you're out there, you're single, you'd have a desire to be married, that's a wonderful thing. But uh, what the Bible says is marry someone who loves Jesus Christ more than he loves, more than he or she loves you. In this kind of love story that we see with Isaac and Rebecca, you're going to be setting the foundation to have that kind of love story because they were equally yoked. Yeah, fantastic. David, thank you so much. Always love talking, and blessings to you and your family. Thank you so much, Bill. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest, host of The Christian Worldview. You can go to thechristianworldview.org. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back.
rising of the sun to the going down of the same. You are my God, and all I want to do is praise your name. Glad to welcome back to the program Clay Cravey. He's a pastor in North Dakota, and he also created uh, ReasonableTheology.org. He wants to help make theology really accessible to uh, to the everyday Christian, and he does it so beautifully. Cray, welcome back to the show. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time to have me. Always look forward to talking with you. Thank you so much. I think we're going to talk today about union with Christ, and let's start with just by defining it. What is union with Christ? Absolutely. This is such an important theological concept uh, with with a deceptively simple definition. When we're talking about union with Christ, we're really just talking about our being in Christ and Him being in us. So it's it's being identified so closely with Christ that we are said to be united to Him. We're united to Christ both in His death and in His life. And it's it's easy to kind of to throw that out there, and it seems like, well, that makes sense. But it's just one of those doctrines that you can keep digging and digging, and the implications and the applications it has on the Christian life is just phenomenal. All right. Now, doesn't that make you want to stand up and cheer and go, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard? I get to have union with Christ? Are you, are you kidding? This is fantastic. A- absolutely. And so often when we talk about what, what Christ has done for us or who we are, uh, as Christians, we say a lot of things that are true and good and wonderful. We talk about how his his death paid our ransom and that he purchased us with his blood, that that we are saved by him, that he loves us and we love him. All that is true. All that is praiseworthy. But it's even more than that. We are united to Christ. We are so, so close to him that we are really, Jesus talks about how he will be in us and we will be in him. It's this union with Christ that really is uh, the whole of our salvation. It's something that doesn't get talked about in quite that way as much as it did in the olden days, the Puritan days. They talked about it quite a bit, but it really is just the central truth of what our salvation is. You know, Clay, sometimes uh, this has gotten um, talked about, I mean, this gets talked about a lot, but this whole idea, I think Paul brings it up in Romans, that, that if, if we are united in Christ, um, are, the question is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, no, by no means. Um, I'd love for you to comment about that. Absolutely. And that, that takes place in Romans chapter 6. And those first 11 verses of Romans 6, I think, is just a wonderful place to go if you're trying to to wrap your hands around what this unity with Christ is. And you're right, he's coming out of a, a passage where he's trying to to anticipate an objection or a question the reader might have, and he's saying, so should we just keep sinning and get more grace? And, and absolutely not, by no means. And in verse 3 of chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And you might picture your baptism there, but what he's really talking about is is being immersed in the death of Christ, submerged in Christ in his death. And that's one of those ways that we are united to Christ. He goes on in verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're so united to Christ 
We're so uh, much in him and he and us. It's as if we died on the cross. And, and that might sound kind of strange and odd, but if you look elsewhere in Scripture in the New Testament, it talks about us in that way. It talks about having not only been baptized into Christ's death, but we see Paul in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. In 2 Corinthians, one has died for all, therefore all have died. We have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, Colossians says. So over and over again, we realize that our unity with Christ is not just we're united in his resurrection, which we are, but in a very real sense, we are united to him in his death. And that's just an amazing, difficult to to wrap your head around truth that really does reveal to us just what took place on the cross, just what happened to our sins. It's not merely that the the price was paid on our behalf so we don't have to pay it, all true, but we died in Christ. And so we are dead to sin and we are unable to live for him. I want to keep talking about that, Clay, because it's so interesting. I love that passage from Galatians where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. When you hear that, does that mean to you that the that Christ's crucifixion is part of your story? Or is there some amount of suffering that you're, you went through as a result of Christ's crucifixion? How do you put that in you know, context? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think when we talk about, you know, our spiritual lives as Christians, we really need to see what took place on the cross 2,000 years ago. That is, is really the, the hinge point of our story. Because as, as much as we're talking about being in Christ here, the reality that Scripture paints for us is that all humanity is either in Adam, that is to say that they are in sin, or they are in Christ, and they have been redeemed by him. So for all of us that follow Christ, yes, that is part of our story in that we have gone from being in Adam and being uh, left to, to pursue the, the passions of this world to where God has rescued us, he has ransomed us, he has he's saved us, and he has made us alive together in Christ. You know, when I think of the crucifixion, and I, I love going to that image because it's so beautiful and powerful and humbling, and then I think of Joseph of Arimathea, who asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, and that the, the dead Jesus bloodied, beaten, and now dead, being taken down from the cross. What, what a overwhelmingly beautiful moment of, of sacrifice and love. And the fact that Joseph of Arimathea, I can't wait to talk to him in heaven, what that was like. Yeah, absolutely. I'm obviously off on we... a tangent, Clay, so there you go. No, that's fine, and, and it's, but that is central to what we're talking about here in, in this piece of being united in his death is that full picture that we get in the Gospels of his death and what has taken place, not only for you, but in in a real sense, what has taken place and what has happened to you. And of course, I don't mean to say that uh, myself as an individual believer or that that we experience the excruciating uh, event of Christ's crucifixion. Obviously, we didn't. Obviously, that's the joy that he died in our place. We do not have to, but we are so um, intimately beneficiaries 
of what took place on the cross, that it may as well have been that we were on there with him. That's how much what Christ did for us has been applied to us. Mm -hmm. What does this union with Christ, uh, being dead to sin, mean for us, since we do still sin? We do still sin, and and this doesn't mean that that we are going to be sinless in this life, but I think when people start to, to get a grasp of this doctrine of the unity of Christ, they start to really see that this is the key to dying to sin and, and living to Jesus, to understand that it's not a matter of—it's um, not so much a matter of needing to try harder and harder to stop sinning. And it's not a matter of, on the other hand, oh, sin's no big deal. That's how Paul started off. He's not telling you just to sin and and enjoy all the grace that comes. Instead, the picture that he's painting and the instruction that he's giving is that because we're united to Christ in death, we ought to be united to him in how we live our lives. And that's really the picture of the Christian life. Yeah, great answer, Clay. Let me ask you this. This gets a little personal, but you don't have to name the specific sin, but when you deal with a sin in your life and you want to say no, how do you go about doing this on a on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? That is a good question, and that's the question that ought to be forefront of all our minds as believers, because so often where we can fall into, and I, I fall into that same pattern of either just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps mm-hmm. and, and press on harder, or we fall into this pattern of, oh, I sinned, but I'm going to I'm gonna try even better next time, and I'll just kind of even the scales, which is not all the picture of the Christian life that we're given in Scripture. I, I think when you step back and you take a look at the whole instruction that we're getting on how we're to live in the Christian life in this fallen world, in this body of flesh, we see that we are to pursue Christ knowing that we fight not for victory, we fight from victory. We are dead to sin. And until we realize that we are dead to sin, we don't do a very good job of fighting against temptation to sin. We kind of act as though well, you know, I'm a sinner. Oh, well, I, you know, there's grace anyways. And that's the wrong attitude to have. Instead, we recognize that because of Christ, because I've died to sin in Christ, I do have the ability through Christ in me, again, more elements of that union with Christ to resist, to fight off temptation. Will we do that perfectly? Sadly, no, not in this life, but we do gain greater and greater control and mastery over the sin that remains in us as we pursue Jesus. And there's a phrase, a Puritan phrase, that's always been helpful to me, and it's called the the expulsive power of a new affection or a greater affection. Mm-hmm. And that's just Puritan speak for it's very hard to just stop doing something, whether it's uh, changing out good habits or bad habits for good or stopping sin. But the key is to have a greater affection for something that is good or better for you. And when we behold Christ, when we behold what he's done for us, when we behold the riches of joy that are available to us in him, well, all that fool's gold that that Satan offers in this world starts to really lose its luster, and, and we start to see the hook that is in the bait that Satan often dangles before us, and those things are less attractive are we still 
prone to to fall into those traps and to bite those hooks? Oh, yes, we are. But less and less, the more and more we see that we have died with Christ and that we are called to live in him as as being united to him in this life. I'm talking to uh, Clay Craby. He's pastor in North Dakota. And Clay, is it safe to say that uh, you are at Grace Baptist Church in Grand Forks? That is correct. All right, then I'm one for one, which makes me happy. And also, he is the uh, founder and originator of uh, ReasonableTheology.org. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Clay on union with Christ. What a beautiful message. Be right back. So glad that Clay Kirby is my guest. He is a pastor in North Dakota and also a creator of ReasonableTheology.org. We're talking about union with Christ, and I frankly love this topic because uh, it's something we should all be thrilled about. Um, and when I think, Clay, of the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's available to us, uh, we should be talking truth to ourselves all day long about that. Absolutely. And and to not separate how we think of, of our triune God, because that same power that raised him from the dead, that's the power that resides in us as believers. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have access to, to the power of God in us. I'm not talking about walking around and, and doing miracles at will. What I'm talking about is we, we don't want to lessen the truths of Scripture just when they we get difficult for us to comprehend. So when Scripture tells us plainly that Christ is going to send a helper, and, and when he says that I am in them and they are in me, or the Spirit resides in the heart of the believer, we're still talking about God. We're still talking about the Creator who raised Christ up from the dead with his power. And I was thinking of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 22. It says, you were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So I think what you were talking about a little bit earlier, Clay, was taking off and putting on. I mean, you, you need to have a new passion, don't you? Absolutely, and it kind of goes into that having that that greater affection. And none of these things are merely uh, trying to have you know to muster up the power in yourself or set your mind right or any of those things. It's really about recognizing who you are in Christ and and then living accordingly. You know, in Colossians three, it's a very similar verse to what you read from Ephesians, but it talks about if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. You've you've died to sin in Christ. And it talks about you're so in Christ as a believer that your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a what a wonderful, in many ways, mysterious picture it is of the life of a believer. 
And if we've been crucified with Christ, Clay, how important is it for us to be always reminding ourselves that we want to put sin in our lives to death. We don't want to entertain it. We don't want it hanging on the fringe of our life. We want it stomped out. Absolutely. Sin is is not to to be tolerated. Sin is not to be winked at right. by any means. That's not the, the view that you get, particularly from the Apostle Paul's letter, but throughout the whole of Scripture. And I think that's the challenge for all believers, is not to to tolerate a certain level of sin in us, but to really renew our vigor in seeking out and destroying sin wherever it lurks in our hearts. And that difficult work, what, what, again, the Puritans would call the mortification of sin, is really one of the essential elements of what it is to be a follower of Christ, is to constantly do our part as you know, the, the Scripture talks about how we're working out our salvation. Yes, we do that by the Spirit, but there's still effort on our part involved to flee from and to actively root out and destroy sin that remains in us. It's a lifelong work. Thankfully, we have Christ in us. We have the Spirit of God in us to enable us to do that important work, but it is absolutely essential that we see that as an active obedience. This isn't something that just happens to us. This requires daily attention and effort on our part. Yeah, you really don't drift into holiness, do you? No, absolutely not. And too often we we kind of set ourselves up for thinking that way. We we don't set times and guard times to read our Bibles. We don't set and guard times to be in prayer or meditate on the Word or memorize Scripture or be in fellowship with one another. And yet we're surprised when we run into some some sin issues in our life. We pull up the floorboards and we see termites yeah. without seeing that, yeah, I have not been actively cultivating a heart for the things of God. And that always, always means that sin is lurking. We know Satan's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to whom he devo- can devour. Satan's not taking a day off, and Christians can't be either. Mm-hmm. All right, Clay, I want to encourage our listeners because I know there are plenty that feel defeat in their life or they feel discouragement, and maybe uh, they can say in their heart, I've been united with Christ, yet I feel a little distant. That's a good word there because one thing to recognize is if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, you've trusted in Him alone for salvation, you are united to Christ, and there's no falling in or out of that. You're in Christ now, the way we live our Christian lives and, and the different sins or failures that we have, that can make us feel that more or less. But here's the encouragement I would give is, again, being united to Christ means that not only are you in Him, but He's in you. I love it. And we see time and time again verses where, where Jesus says, because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Christ is in us. And we're in Christ, and that's what enables us to do what would otherwise be impossible, and that's living for Him in this body of flesh in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. All right, we just got a few minutes left, uh, Clay. Any other little uh, gems that you came across when you were studying union with Christ that you haven't added into the discussion yet? Only for folks to recognize, uh, just take the opportunity when you're in 
uh, maybe the back of your Bible in the concordance or using some software or a website, go ahead and do a little study and look up in him or in Christ in your New Testament. And you're going to see dozens and dozens and dozens of references where it talks about the benefits, the duties, the, the privileges of being in Christ. Not every instance is going to be used grammatically in the same way, but the bulk of them are particularly referring to our union with Christ. I think you'll be really blessed by just taking—I mean, you could spend weeks on that, but the next few days, print off a list of verses that talk about being in Christ or in Him, and just study through those things. And I, I'm confident that you'll be blessed for your time in God's Word there. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I have a roof over my head and food on my table, but I'm most thrilled about being in union with Christ. Absolutely. The greatest blessing that we could possibly imagine is is made available to us. And really, it helps us stay calm in the midst of difficult circumstances, knowing that's something that can't be taken away, yeah. something that can't be changed. Clay, thank you so much for doing the show. Really nice to talk to you once again. Nice to talk with you. Always look forward to it. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Clay. Clay Cravey has been my guest. He's a pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and also uh, founder and originator of reasonabletheology.org, reasonabletheology.org. Go check it out. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Faith Radio is a media ministry of University of Northwestern St. Paul, and Faith Radio is growing. As Faith Radio reaches new areas of our nation and the world, we continue to work towards our goal of leading people to Christ and nurturing believers in their faith through Christ-centered media. If you've been encouraged through Faith Radio, let us know. You can find out more about connecting with us on our website at MyFaithRadio.com. That's MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. This is Peter Kapsner here. I just thought we'd check in. Rebecca Maxwell and I here as we get ready to wrap up this first hour as Bill is on vacation. And I'll be stepping in for the next couple of days. Life will be in studio with, your, uh, with you here, Rebecca. Thanks. It's good to have you in here. And I know that Bill is enjoying just a little bit of time away, but it was nice of him to to uh, get some things down on tape for us. So we have some great, great discussions like the one you just heard with Clay Craby. Yeah, it's always amazing to me how many people you guys bring in and just the heart that you have for the show to bring in guests that can really te- take us more deeply into the scriptures like that. I mean, to union with Christ is one of those phrases that we hear, right, in our faith, and it can kind of sound sort of out there and maybe ethereal, and, and how do we even know, but but to really dig into it in a half an hour, it's a real treat for the listeners, and I know as I'm part of the show, but also listen to the show, it, it really is, I mean, it's almost like seminary Bible stuff that he brings into play, and yet it's accessible. I love it. At half the price. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> no, that's, real, that's really what Bill's heart is, and, and always has been, is just to get people into the Word and to know the Bible and the God of the Bible, as revealed through scripture and to have that understanding and above all that relationship with a God who loves us so much that he revealed himself through his word and wants us to know him. And so to have that opportunity to be able to get to know him and to ask questions and, and find people who are far smarter than we are to give us some of these answers when we don't know them and just 
say, help me know and understand. And, and I want to know this, to be identified in Christ. It's, it's, there's nothing better. Yeah, in the season in which we live and the craziness of our world, and it seems like we wake up to headlines again each day that, that are just very difficult to process. And to have a show like this and a place like this where we can come each day and, and really just, it, it almost feels like a daily Sabbath. I know Sabbath is, is a weekly thing that we do where we rest and we, we reorient ourselves to God. But, but this two hours feels a bit like a Sabbath to just step in and say, oh, you know, yes, there is crazy out in the world. And yes, we don't even know what's going to happen the next day. And you and I were talking off air that that no event is promised to us in the future. We really True. don't know what the next day is going to hold. And so to, to step into some of these kind of conversations just feels like, oh, I get to take a breath. I remember there is a king on the throne. I remember there is a king of a kingdom that is an eternal kind of kingdom that, that we can fix our eyes on yet once again. Yeah. And it's one of Bill's favorite quotes that I remember now because he says it. Is right. <laughs> that, that which is not eternal is eternally out of date. And so we try very hard and, and it's Bill's heart to keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad to be with you as a listeners, too. I know we're going to wrap up this uh, first hour of the show. And coming up in hour two, we're going to be joined again, continuing this Bible conversation by Reverend Chris Palmer. And he's released a new book called The Greek Word Study, 90 Ancient Words That Unlock Scripture. I don't think we can get to all 90 with him in the hour to come, but it's a pretty intriguing study where we really dig into the original language a bit and what these words that we read in the English can mean and, and really explode in our thinking and in our hearts as we look at the original language in which they're written. So hang with us. And again, if you have some questions in hour two as well, you want to prepare them during the break here at 877-933-2484. You can text them to studio and we will read them to Chris. So hang with us for hour two on The Bill Arnold Show. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.